Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at B-Dratty. I had a great time with uh, the guys from B-Dratty and Summit Golf Brands this week at the PGA show. Um, they were uh, really helpful putting this podcast together with Brad Faxon, um, as well as last week's with Billy Dratty. And uh, it was a really great time. Saw their new product line, lots of great stuff, um, you know, rolling out their uh, sport polo, so B-Dratty Sport. We'll hopefully have some of that up in our pro shop pretty soon, and uh, should be able to find it at many of the pro shops across the country this summer. So it's a great new tech fabric. Uh, just a reminder, <clears throat> the Liam Polo is one of my favorites. It's the uh, the Peruvian cotton with a hint of stretch in it that makes the, you know all the difference. But one of the really cool things is that you can monogram them. So you can get your own initials on this polo if you uh, order through bdraddy.com. Uh, we've got a new promo code for you guys. So if you want to go get your monogram polo, you get 15% off. You get 15% off all your purchases on bdraddy.com with the exception of licensed gear. So use the promo code FRIEDEGG15, and that's all caps, FRIEDEGG, and then the number 15, and you'll get 15% off your order from bdraddy.com. <clears throat> Now on to our conversation with Brad Faxon. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So you said just the facts. Uh, it's funny. Uh, when I was looking at titles for my show, I, I had done a charity event uh, a few years ago and called it Facts and Friends. You know, there's a show on Fox called Fox and Friends, the morning show. Uh, I work for Fox Sports. Uh, my wife wakes up every morning, turns on uh, Fox and Friends. So I thought Facts and Friends would be a pretty good name. And then, But just the facts spelled F-A-X instead of F-A-C-T-S. Uh, kind of, I thought that was a, a better way to go. And I like how you just started in because the guys that I like on radio, especially the guys I listened to in New England when I was living in Rhode Island, that there was a show on WEEI in the morning, the Dennis and Callahan show. It was a pretty big show, syndicated show. And they just started talking. They didn't, and, and everybody on Sirius XM on PJ Tour radio, you know, Michael Breed, whether it's uh, Taylor Zarzar, they start off talking, hey, it's, name of the show, station we're on. I mean, people know that. You know, I, I just, I think, like, you just, let's have a conversation. Well, so I think about it. I had this uh, epiphany when I, I interview a lot of architects, and they talk about constraints. Like, if, if you put a clubhouse here, you got to start here. Right. And you got to end here. Versus, and I thought about it, I was like, if I do an intro and I introduce somebody, I have to start right there. I don't get the ability to, like, if we have a conversation, like, I could cut this out. If, if I wanted to start our conversation 15 minutes in, because that's where I think it really kicks off well, I can't move things around as easily if we do an intro. Exactly. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, if you have something you want to talk about, just start talking about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't know. There's too many rules sometimes on the radio for, for my liking, where I have to reintroduce the person I've been talking to, like, it just doesn't feel right. It's not something we would do sitting on this chair and couch together talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. It's. I, I mean, how's how's uh, hosting and doing interviews been after being on the other side? It, it, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I went to uh, when when I first got my card in 1984. The PGA Tour offered some media and PR counseling from a woman named Andrea Kirby. And, and I thought it was a great idea. She had been at ESPN for a long time, and she was, her topic was to help you answer tough questions, how to stay on point, how to move the conversation in a direction that would benefit you, um, and ultimately, how to look good. And she talked about body language and how important body language was when you were getting interviewed. And she showed us an incredible example of a, of a hockey player after he had, uh, a game was over. She turned the sound down. 
guy had a towel over me, knew it was the end of the game, and you just watched him answer this question that took about 45 seconds. And then she paused the video and said, what do you think just happened to this guy and, or his team? And we all said, well, he got the news that somebody in his family died. Um, they must have lost. He must have given up the winning goal or whatever it was. And he had just scored the winning goal in triple overtime to win the Stanley Cup. And I'm looking at this going, she's right. Because I never thought body language could make such a difference. And smiling is important. People like to see people that are happy. And even Michael Breed, who's been a great uh, friend to me and, and you know, an advisor really going on the radio, he says, the more you can stand up when you do your show and the more you can smile when you talk, people can hear your smile. And I'm going, that's ridiculous. But it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, they can hear your happiness, uh, your excitement. So I started the Just the Fact show almost exactly a year ago here at the show. I signed my contract. Uh, and, and I think I learned from this woman, Andrea Kirby, 1984. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, how to, to speak better, how to end a sentence. A, a lot of times, you know, the one thing I learned then was you keep talking sometimes and you never stop talking. Mm-hmm. And if you were lucky enough to watch Jim Nance and Condoleezza Rice yesterday at the Titleist opening, Jim Nance is he's so in control. He's never rushed. He's never hurried. He pauses and it doesn't feel like you're waiting for him to say the next thing. And it's just it's regular. It's normal. Uh, so long answer to your question. It's, well, it's amazing. Like people that are very good at at asking questions. It's a real art. Because it's they're brief, but they're like they get their point across so quickly. I'm still. I, it's funny. I listen to myself uh, self some when I'm editing, and I'm like, God, just stop talking. Yes, and that you know we were talking about my interview coming up with Scotty Cameron, and you've got to ask a short, open-ended question because people want to hear the person you're talking to, mm-hmm. and you know you always got to the, the conversation is going to drag in a direction, and then you got to bring it back and you know get a few points across but I think so t- t- your, your original question for me being the host of a show I mean I've had some friends tell me look people just want to hear what you have to think about golf and golfing in the world um, you don't need a lot of guests w- when I'm doing a show by myself and not sitting in front of somebody it's hard to talk by yourself I'm not looking at anybody I'm looking at four walls uh, so that's more difficult than having somebody on the show. Um, I'm lucky because my show is on Monday, so there's always something to talk about after a weekend of golf on all the tours. But everybody does that. So I'm trying to get guests that people don't have all the time or thoughts people don't hear all the time so that my show can be a little bit more unique. And I'll throw my opinion there. I'll, I'll get on that. Um, and I, I've enjoyed it, but I'm in a, a really interesting part of my career as I've winded down from playing golf to working more in media, working for Fox at the USGA. So, and then having my feet in the game as an instructor with some top players. Yeah. A few famous ones. It's yeah. (laughs) But I mean, it's, it's odd because I don't know that I've seen a TV announcer that's really involved in players games and it it can be, I guess Costas, a little bit yeah, with costs, with uh, Paul sure. Casey, like, and it was always when Paul Casey's coming down the stretch. Yeah. He's, he's talking about like very intimate knowledge of the swing and what happens to Paul when it, the pressure gets a little, you know. I know. In one of my, I don't know if you'd call this a shtick or not, but when I first met Rory McIlroy, which was almost two years ago, he um, he was under contract with another putting instructor and. I was one of those that took a lot of lessons and I knew what it was like to cheat on an instructor. I wouldn't say cheat, but uh, cheat. Uh, I told Roy, the first thing I said to him is I said, Roy, I'm not looking for any publicity here. I I will never say anything to anybody about you and I speaking. Um, If you go to the press and say something and then somebody asks me, I'll just kind of repeat what you said, but our stuff is sacred to me and you. And I think that gave him pause to exhale and say, thank you. Um, and it was uncomfortable because Kenyon, uh, Phil Kenyon, who's a, one of the most noted putting instructors, teaches, I mean, Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, Molinar, Westwood, yeah. Fleetwood. Uh, I'm, I'm missing other good players, uh, Fitzpatrick and, and Rory. And, you know, it's, it's hard. But, uh, and, and maybe even the stuff that they worked on was 
correct, uh, helped his stroke get better. Um, but, you know, maybe unlocking the door is what I helped him. I've, I've ta- I talked with uh, some pros yesterday, some, some club pros, about the idea, and I think this is so true with teaching golf, is you could, two teachers can be teaching the same thing, but one, it, it's conveying the message in a, in, a, in a way that the pupil understands it. Like, you could be teaching the same exact thing, but just the way you convey the information, something clicks with one way versus the other. And that feel or that thought really resonates, and all of a sudden it works. It's fascinating to me, this game, how um, players' minds work sometimes in pictures, words, or phrases. And I can give you a great example of of some time I spent with Gary Woodland, who is another student now of of Phil Kenyon. But I spent a little time with him four or five years ago. Um, and, And as talented as Gary Woodland was and is, he was a young golfer uh, when I first started talking to him. You know, he, he didn't play golf as a kid like most players on the tour do now. And we were just having a conversation about putting, and we were on a, a putting green at Old Marsh down where I live, a beautiful old Pete Dye course. And I made a comment to him that when I was putting my best, I always had to mark a putt when I missed because it ran far enough by the hole that it wasn't um, a tap-in. When I, when I was putting my best. I mean, when I'm not putting my best, I'm a little more cautious, and then the speed's closer to the hole, and people as, kind of assume that, oh, he's got great touch when it ends up right by the cup. I, I think the most, uh, the most prolific putters hit the ball with a little bit of authority. So I, I just had that conversation. I never really said anything more than that um, to Gary, and then the next week he had a great first round, and his press room com- uh, comments were, I, I talked to Brad Faxon last week. He told me to hit it harder. Never said that. I didn't say hit it harder, Gary. I said just my putts always went by the hole a little bit. But how he interpreted my little phrase or my comment was, I need to hit it harder to make more putts. It's interesting. I think, like, I grew up caddying and and played, but when pressure comes, putting, you start worrying about the next putt instead of, it it seems like, and and it's always pace-oriented, right? Yes. Like, whenever anybody has a big putt, it, it, it's very rare to see somebody like, you know, hit it with that pace. That in most putts, like they go in when they go in, they're you know they they've got pace to them. I I see that most of all. Um, and, and look, I'm new from the instructor side. I was a player, and and because you were a a good player or a good putter, doesn't mean you're going to be a good instructor, does it? Um, you know, does Jack Nicholas because he was the best player that ever lived, or Tiger Woods? Does that mean they're going to be great instructors? You know, you have to have a way about having a conversation or, or talking to them uh, to, to help them. And, and le- you, you need to learn about the person, the personality, um, how they think. And, uh, you know, I did this for a long time well. I got better as I got older. Um, and I've learned a lot now from some of these putting instructors or what they look at uh, on the technical side of it. And... I've, I've yet to have any player, whether they're a great player or an aspiring player, come to me and say, I need more thoughts, I need to take more time, and I need to try harder. I've never had any great player, talented player, say that to me. Now, beginner golfers, they need a lot of instruction. And, and when people ask me, is there a secret to this? And I say, it's time. You know, there's not a shortcut to this. You know, you're not going to be a great putter uh, by taking two lessons, you know, you've got to spend endless hours. Um, and, and I, I think later today when I talk to Cameron, I, I to Scotty uh, about putting, I get insulted when somebody says, well, you're just lucky you were born that way. And I'm like, whoa, and let's, let's go back to when I was five or six years old and first starting and how many hours and how many times did I spend hitting putts from all distances on all kinds of courses throughout a year. So, yeah, get me going that way. Yeah, I I think I was talking to Billy Hurley last night, and he was talking about like people that he's played golf with, all different walks of life, but success. They, the and he was talking about himself. He and he said, you know, the thing is, anybody that has you know that reaches a high level of success in a field, they've made a sacrifice that other people didn't want to make. Whether it was moving somewhere early in their career to get ahead, like moving to Asia, if you're you know in business and getting ahead that way or 
in his case, he's like, the amount of time I've spent hitting three foot putts is something that nobody else would do. Like very few people would do. Yes. Yeah. So I, I can go back. Reminds me of um, in my college days, one of my college roommates was on the baseball team. He was a pitcher for the baseball team and he was a good pitcher, but he wasn't an aspiring professional um, in the, the school. Furman University had a decent baseball program for a s- small division one double A school. But I was a, so devoted to the game that every class I took at Furman was between nine and 12. So I was always done at 12 and many of the days I'd go hit balls before my nine o'clock class. So I didn't go out as late as a lot of my friends. I wasn't crazy. I mean, I had fun certain times, but, um, he, he didn't say, he never said anything about it. And after our first full year as roommate, he goes, I'm so impressed with how disciplined you are. Cause he says, I would never be able to do that. And I, I never thought of that as a sacrifice. You know, I thought like when my eyes opened, I wanted to be outside hitting golf balls. Uh, and most of the great players, I, I don't see these great players of today getting up at 11 o'clock in the morning and trying to figure out what their day is going to be like. Most of them have a little bit of a plan going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, that's the thing is all the hours that go into yeah. it. So you, you talked last night a lot about, you know, getting thoughts out of your head. And I'm a big proponent of this with putting. How do you, how do you get people to get stuff out of their head in the first place? Like what? <laughs> okay. Uh, so there's, I found there's two really good ways to do it. First of all, I've played a lot of golf with a lot of thoughts in my head swinging. You know, I went to more teachers than anybody. I can guarantee you, I, I would probably lead the tour in two categories. One, and I'll, maybe Ben Crenshaw would be ahead of me, but I think I've played more of the top 100 courses than anybody. I think so. Um, and I think I've worked... I know I've worked and paid for more instructors than anybody a lot. Over 80. That's a lot. That's Written a lot. checks to 80 different instructors. Uh, and I have a list somewhere that's pretty funny to see. Uh, and I get my balls busted all the time about it. So I know what it's like to play with no thoughts, one thought, or 50 thoughts. And in putting, I don't know why I was able to separate that and, and play with zero to one. You know, or somewhere in between zero and one is the right amount, in my opinion. So... If I have somebody that comes to see me and they have multiple thoughts, I kind of look at it like if, if you're a, a big guy, if you're an overweight guy um, and you're, you're trying to lose weight, you don't go from a bacon double cheeseburger to a turkey burger or an impossible burger. You, you just take the bacon off first, right? You got to go in layers. Mm-hmm. And somebody that has 100 thoughts, you, you got to dwindle it down so i actually add thoughts to them so they could get rid of all the other ones something to hold on to yeah and and finding that magic is will take time to do it and then when i have somebody like patrick cantley who had been to a bunch of instructors and every instructor tells him you have a great stroke why aren't you making putts you know that's the hardest thing to to figure out because now it's more let's sit down because Every time he hits a putt, people say, well, your stroke's perfect. All the machines, all the technology tells you face and path are square. Tempo's good. Grip looks good. Pat, you know, everything. And you're like, holy smokes. Um, this, this is going to take some time, too. So that's the two ends of the spectrums. And I, I rarely see it. And, and I'm friendly with, I know Phil Kenyon a little bit. David Oro is a bit of big help to me in learning about biomechanics of the putting stroke, the weight shifts and everything that happened. Uh, wrist angles changes and I'm like oh my gosh so when he starts talking about this stuff he he can look at a player in one stroke and and pick apart the mechanical side of that but if you start trying to change a player's ulnar or radial deviation you know words that I hate hearing an instructor talk about to a player um, it can scare somebody yeah you know players don't want to make big changes they and they want to keep their feels uh and, and with with all the technology now, I'm fascinated with all the information's out there and how some of that's transferred to a player. And no wonder so many guys are getting afraid of chipping and putting. And chipping's become an epidemic. It used to be just hit a chip shot. I never thought about it. Now, like, there's 10 ways to hit one shot. I'm like, what? It is a, it, you know, a, a comment from last year with the rules change with the pin in. 
I'll never forget, you know, Adam Scott had a great year, actually, statistically, on and around the greens, and he talked about with putting with the pin in, how it, you know, the pin being in reminded him of a kid when he would just go to the practice green and just hit putts and everything would hit the pin and go in. And it's like, almost like, you could tell from that comment, it almost freed his mind, it like liberated him and brought back like a, a much simpler time, because every, every professional remembers when they're a kid somehow golf can get more difficult the more you work at it 100 percent uh i think every one of us played on a course that had a short little flag stick on a putting green i don't know if you'd call it a flag stick yeah whatever that thing was where you had the handle where you could pull it up and uh it it was metal and you could hit the ball hard and you could make it make a loud noise and we challenged ourselves how hard can you hit this in and make the ball go in and you know maybe we're too lazy to pull it out of there to hit practice putts or maybe you wanted to hit all three of your balls in there and scoop it up and catch all three balls at once you know when you did that uh, and i understand the mindset from adam scott and how hey if that brings me back to that childlike memories enthusiasm that i had uh where i didn't worry about missing i think that's cool i hate the rule i hate the rule i think it's degrading to the game uh, I can't imagine uh, at the Masters this year somebody having a five-footer to win uh, and leaving the flag stick in. It's like, wh- what are we doing, playing a late nine holes? I mean, take the flag stick out. Is it really speeding up the game? No. As a matter of fact, a lot of caddies tell me, you know, some guys want it in, some guys want it out. We're asking questions. Uh, and it certainly is not growing the game. Do you think somebody's ever driven by – uh, you know, a public course and said, oh, they leave the flag sticks in. Let's go play golf today. You know, so w- why? Why are we doing this? Well, and I think this is I get uh, I, the rules. Like one of the things that drives me nuts is like interpretation of them. Right. This is a rule that was created for when me and my buddy are play- trying to cram in nine holes at the end of the day. We're chasing the sun. I'm 100 feet away on, and I'm putting to a pin. I can putt with it in. You know, that that was, I think, I assume is the intention, intention of the rule. Like, I don't have to go pull the flag out. And because I in in but professional golfers, their job is to look for ways to get tiny incremental advantages. And, right. And this is a, a method of, you know, hey, I can get a little advantage here if I if I some people think I, I personally believe like. I've made putts with it out my whole life. I can't look at it and make a putt with it in because, like, it's just a foreign thing to me. Uh, that's it's so. I have so many uh, responses to this. Uh, as a kid, I was a caddy. My dad was a golfer. Uh, I grew up with the game. I, I learned rules. Uh, the number one rule: uh, play it as it lies. That's the first thing we learned about the game. <clears throat> Patrick Reed. Uh, so that's w- one thing, and then. You know, the flag stick was to be removed. I remember playing um, with a member at my club. I was young, and this guy's name was Ralph Gunderson. His wife was my gym teacher in elementary school. And Ralph was a good player. I caddied for him a lot, and it just so happened that he said, you want to come play a few holes with me? We were in a cart, and I'll never forget this. I was on the 12th hole. We were playing like an emergency nine, and I had like a 30-footer, and the flag stick was in, and he's just kind of standing on the fringe waiting for me to putt. And I, I said, Mr. Gunderson, can you grab the flag for me? And I would have never considered even putting, even this was meaningless nine holes with the flag stick in. And he kind of was like, oh. And he walked over and took the flag. It was, you know, it's one of those things. I followed that rule. And and now that it's changed, I'm like, it's. I think it's cheapening the game. There's no sense in it. Uh, and now there's debates about, you can listen to Mark Brody. You can listen to Dave Pels. You can listen to the professor at Berkeley that said, uh, keeping the flag stick in helps most of the time, unless you're going to miss it, uh, hit the flag stick on the low side of a breaking putt. It has more chances to go out than go in. So I'm so confused. I don't, I don't know what's right. But what I do know, I was in a conversation with Bob Rotella and Dave Pels. Now, Pels would have been the first guy that studied, I don't know if you'd call this science. He likes to call himself a scientist. But his opinion was it was better to keep the flag stick in when you were off the green. I remember that. Remember that? Uh, You had more chances of the ball going in than not going in. And uh, Rotella said to him, Dave, I just tell my players whatever makes you more confident. And 
Pell's got no, it has nothing to do with confidence because the ball's rolling. It doesn't know if you're confident or not. And Rotella says, no, but you have to get the ball rolling. And if the flag stick in makes you more confident, you have a better chance of making it. If the flag stick out makes you more confident, you have a better chance of making it. So I, I'm a big Rotella guy. And I, Pell's was kind of speechless and he got angry. It was funny. It's, and I think this is like one of the most compelling things with golf is hitting on this is like there's a constant tussle between like the science and the the just the the mental aspect of golf like yes. is it art or is it science and is it like there and i feel and i'm interested to hear your perspective working with tour players and being on tour for years tour players typically fall in there are really analytical ones and really just feel-based players right and there's not a ton in the middle ground you're saying there's not a ton in the middle ground. Or, yeah, it, it, to me, it's it's so individualistic on and how a player plays and how they think. And the greatest two players, we said it earlier, Jack and Tiger, you can see them behind the ball painting a picture, an image in their mind, and, and very deliberate, both of them. Tiger takes three or four practice swings almost every shot. Uh, Jack seems to stand behind that ball all the time. Uh, and I, the, the image of Jack on the 18th hole in 1986 at the Masters, he was hitting three wood off that tee. And I don't know if you remember it, but he, he would always picture a shot, and he hit this beautiful little, almost like a pull-cut fade all the time. And he had teed the ball up fairly high for a three wood uh, back then with Persimmon. And he always kind of walked up with the, club dangling in his right hand and his left hand kind of shaking as he circled into his path to get to address the ball and on this particular shot uh, he got up over it, he went through his waggles and he stepped away and he he started looking at his glove like something was wrong with his glove when he clearly wasn't able to make this swing because he didn't have the picture and and ready and one of the announcers said oh jack's nervous here uh, you know, and, and people would get concerned when somebody stepped away from a shot. And to me, it's like, no, he's gathering his thoughts here. He, and then he piped this three wood right down the middle. Um, and I'm like, that's a guy that is, is committed. And if you watch Justin Thomas this year at, in the playoff at Kapalua, where both Shoffley and Reed had missed putts that they said they got gusted, Justin Thomas had about a three-foot putt to win, and you saw him step away. And I texted him afterwards because I he texted he uh, he said hey look the wind was blowing it was gusted I wasn't going to let a gust of wind make me blow this putt or blow this tournament and I think that's what the great players have always been able to do. Yeah, it's like when the second something that takes you out of that moment or you think about something other than just what's at hand, you got to just step off. Because it to. breaks that train of thought. It's like nothing ever goes well when you start thinking about something else. No, and and for Rory McIlroy last year at the Players' Championship, I, I mean, it was a to me a monumental occasion on the twelfth hole, the final round. It's the drivable par four water on the left. It's a newer hole. Yeah. It was um, renovated two years ago, maybe. Um, players can easily reach the hole. Rory could do it with the three wood, and he, he left the ball a little bit to the right and short of the green off the t- perfect tee shot. And the flag stick was left towards the water, and he chipped it a little bit by maybe ten or twelve feet close to the fringe. And he had now a kind of an uphill left to right breaking putt, and it was a pivotal putt. It was critical there, and maybe a cup's worth of break. And he got up over the putt, uh, and his we we worked a lot on routine, uh, and then he he stepped away. And he readjusted his line because a lot of times, you know, like most players, he had an under read going and he said, look, I knew I needed to play a little bit more break. So he went through his routine again and made it. And maybe a year before that, he wouldn't have done it. Um, So as a player myself that did situational stuff is a lot of the things we talk about. Um, So it's that wouldn't be mechanics. Right. Uh, But it's like, how are you going to? Uh, respond to something like that? How are you going to respond when you've had a series of putts that you've hit perfectly that go over the edge of the hole and don't go in? How do you talk to yourself? And I feel like that is like, it was like kind of for Rory with what he went through the last few years with the putter, like that's a monumental putt because if you're not putting, if you're not putting well, 
and uphill 10 foot good breaking left to right putt as a righty is you know that's so such a hard putt to because to hit it the pace to get that ball to go in because you, you know the tendency is to miss it short and right like yep. we talked about yep. and coming down the stretch and pressure it, it, do you have a moment from your career that like stands out where you were really working on something and coming down the stretch you know it it clicked and it just set off a really great run of golf i have two putts that i i think have helped me to understand how good the the human body can work and the, and the mind works um one of them was in australia uh i was i had a two-shot lead at the australian open i played the first two rounds with greg norman when he was number one in the world uh, it was at Metropolitan, a great McKenzie course. And, and I had been going down to Australia um, for the past few years and had just learned about all these sandbelt courses. And I'm like, wow, the best greens, hard conditions, firm, windy. And this 18th hole, if I made five, I was going to win. Par four, hit a three-wood off the tee to be safe, hit it down the middle, um, hit it just on the right fringe. Most of the trouble in that hole was on the left. And I putted it up to about four or five feet fast greens and I didn't care if I made this putt or not I really didn't all I knew is if I got it to the lip I could make the next putt so my thought was I want this to get to the front edge and trickle in or I'll be there was no ego in this putt I didn't have to make this to win and I, I hit this putt and it got to the edge and it sat there like Tiger's chip on 16 in Augusta and it fell in and it's just like when you tell your brain when you have that picture that's so clear about what you want to do it's amazing how good you can you can feel things and the best golf I ever played in my career was the 2001 Sony Open at Wiley and I shot 20 under par in the last hole I had you know I played with L's and Lehman so I was playing with top players uh the last couple rounds and it was just a flawless round I eagled uh there were two par fives I made an eagle every day um, and I finished with an eagle on my round three times. And the 18th hole, the 72nd hole, I hit a five wood to about eight to 10 feet under the hole with a left to right break. A good amount, you know, a cup's worth of break. And an another putt that I had no concern about whether I made this putt or not. I, you know, all I saw was a perfect line. Uh, and I remember the feeling, and all of us have felt it, when you hit a putt in the exact middle of the sweet spot and it leaves, it melts onto the, the face of the putter and it goes off and you're like, oh my gosh, that felt good. Everything was perfect. And the ball rolled in at perfect speed, perfect line. Um, and I, I, think you can, I think you can teach people to feel that in practice. You can tell them that they need to get there in competition. But I think I've figured out a few different ways where I can help people understand those feels in their practice where they can translate that to the golf course. And that's, I think that's what the, the goal is of everybody is can you play, you know, rounds of golf playing in that state of mind where there's no concern for the result. I, I mean, I, I never walked down the street thinking I'm the best putter in the world, but I was a confident putter. Uh, and I think for a long time, I was able to putt most putts, taking away the importance, downplay the importance of the putt, the result, and, and just really falling in love with hitting putts. I think that's a lot of it. I, I, I've always been like a player that struggled on the greens, but in the last couple of years, I've learned to like love putting. And it's amazing how like it changed, like all of a sudden people are like, ah, oh, you're a really great putter. And it's just like it was like a mindset switch. And now I can't hit the ball, but that's golf. You know? <laughs> yeah. And people say that uh, all the time. You know, when they're, when they're hitting it well, they tend to not putt as well. When they're putting well, they're not hitting it as well. Um, and sometimes it's desperation you make these putts. Uh, and it's interesting to see, like, statistics on the tour from 5, 8, 10 feet how tour players make more of those for par than they yeah. do for birdie. I mean, so is that technical? No. It's loss aversion. It's what? It's a, I did a podcast with an economist. It's a loss aversion. So tell me what loss aversion is. So people, people remember their losses. They did a whole study on this. They remember their losses more than they remember. They fear losing a shot more than they, they want to gain a shot. 
Loss of earnings. Yeah, okay. That. So they did a study at Oakmont and um, Pebble with the ninth hole at Oakmont and the second hole at Pebble when they switched it from a five to a four. Oh. So by simply switching the par to par four, players scored 0.2 shots better on the hole. Same hole, but par four. Same distance. Same distance. And, and I mean, they did the whole control. Like, they looked at it all over the years. Historically, pretty much the same scoring average. When it switched to par four, the scoring average went down 0.2. They said, if you switch par five, every par five on tour, I, I say par fives don't exist. Because, you know, when you think about par five, it was expert player yeah. reaches it in three shots. Those, those outside of maybe 14 at Pebble, you know, and a few other handful of examples, they're, they're all, all par four. So yeah. if a player could convince themselves that it's a par 68. Whoever this was that you talked to uh, would, if he told every player, you got to play it as a par 68, you're going to shoot a lower score. He, he said they'd, they'd shoot one shot lower per round. It's point like expected. Two per, point two per par five. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So another Rotella story, uh, he was at a, Jack Nicholas was speaking to a group of people and Jack Nicholas was finishing the, conversation the talk and he said i never three putted the last hole of any tournament i ever played in. never he said so uh there was some questions afterwards and then jack uh and rotella were together and this player came up and said to jack jack i remember uh the 18th hole on sunday at so and so tournament in ohio you definitely three putted the last hole and jack said no i never three putted um the last hole and and this conversation went back and forth, and this guy got very angry. And Rotel said, let me ask you something. Um, let's call him Bob. Uh, Bob, what's your handicap? Because I'm 16. He goes, do you remember three-putting your holes, uh, last holes a lot? He goes, oh, yeah, I, can, I, I remember it all the time. He goes, okay, so you're a 16 handicap, and you remember all those. And Jack Nicholas is the best player that ever lived, and he doesn't remember that. Which way of thinking is correct? And the guy walked away angry. Yeah. So, you know, create your own reality. You have to do that to be great at this game. Yeah, sure. I enough. love that story. This is some incredible And I love when people story. walk away all angry at something that makes so much sense, you know. Um, last, last night, I asked about, you know, playing in the environment of like an urban environment, if it was different than. But and your response was, you know, I didn't really care as long as it was a great golf course. To you, what is what is the golf experience you know at a great golf course from like an architectural standpoint how does it enhance the professional golf product so being a rhode islander native rhode islander i was around older golf courses compared to the rest of the country as let's say uh donald ross's home was in rhode island uh in the summers a little town called Little Compton, and he, he built a, a cool little par 69 course called Sakonic Country Club. The course where I grew up, Rhode Island Country Club, was Donald Ross. There's Wanamoyce, probably the most well-known course in the state. Uh, Newport Country Club, this year's U.S. Senior Open host, had Donald Ross holes on it. So William Flynn was there. Tillinghast was there. Willie Park was in Rhode Island. Rainer so was there, too. Rainer was there with Wanamoyce. Billy Andrade grew up on a Rainer course and didn't know who Seth Rainer was. Uh Lee Jansen finally told him that. Uh, so some of the best architects in the world were in Rhode Island. So I learned their names, uh, read a lot about architecture. Then obviously being uh, near Massachusetts, played a lot of courses. The Country Club uh, was one of the original five courses. Uh, William Flynn, who um, you know did Shinnecock Hills as well. So I started learning and tying all these things together. Uh, and learning what great architecture was by playing them, not by, yeah, you know, trying to be, become a landscape architect. You know, I just saw great golf and and how the best holes looked and felt and courses were. And then when I got on the PGA Tour, you know, having watched PGA Tour golf, you, you always knew, uh, listen to players' comments, how I loved Riviera, how I loved Harbortown, how I loved um, Westchester. And they were always the older colonial, the older courses people seemed to players seemed to like. Um, and then as the game started to grow in popularity uh, and we had to be concerned about where are we going to put spectators? Uh, let's create more drama. Uh, that's that's the balance. And I was surprised at how few of the courses we played on the PG Tour were great. You know, we didn't play 
top rank top 100 courses very often so that was always that made that made a difference and but it made less of a difference to players um than i thought you know than i thought it should have do you, do you think that the great golf courses create a different leaderboard than say your run of the mill built for pga tour golf say we'll just say like uh tpc new orleans you know louisiana but like not not i don't want to but do you feel like the riviera riviera created a different different type of success from the player like asked different questions than you know that modern course that you talked about that wasn't like you know yeah that's a good question that there were so many factors that would influence a field a lot of it was tradition, like Riviera had been there for 100 years. Hogan, uh, his history there. Uh, schedule, where it is of the schedule. What, is it a run-up to something? Um, that was important. Purse, that was something. Title sponsor, where you lived. Um, all those things were factors. If, if you think about the U.S. Open, the first one Fox did at Chambers Bay, of course, nobody really knew anything about it. They didn't have any history had a great leaderboard and a compelling finish, didn't it? Yeah. To watch what happened. It was Incredible sensational. Finish. So will Chambers Bay be another U.S. Open course? Maybe. Um, if if the U.S. Open were held at TPC at Louisiana, like you said, would the leaderboard be better than it is as a regular tour event? 100% uh, to get the top players there. Uh, would they have to change the, the, the golf course with firmer conditions and more rough? Absolutely. Uh, but I, you know, every course, every tournament doesn't have to have a fantastic leaderboard to still be a great tournament. As a matter of fact, I think it's better that every tournament's not a nine or 10 on the scale. It's a, it's interesting. So Riviera, one of my favorite stats, I think the last player to win Riviera that was under the age of 28 is Adam Scott. And like, you know, it's like, maybe 13 or 14 years ago now. And it's like something about that place that it favor, you know, and I don't know if this is statistically just an anomaly, but older players seem to thrive there. And I, I don't know if it's something about the, the game at, at Riviera that, you know, requires a little bit of, of thought. The more times you go around it, you learn more and more at great courses. That seems to be one of the common threads is like every time you play it, you, you kind of reveals itself a little bit more. You know, I have a fond spot at Riviera. My greatest round I ever played was there in the PGA in 95. And um, Bob Rotella wrote a story about my round. I don't know if you ever saw it in golf as a game of confidence. And I, I read it or I show players that I've taught or talked to. I don't want to brag and say, hey, read this because it's about me. But uh-huh. what goes through a player's mind when they're playing great is 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 not unique. You know, it's. Um, you still get bad thoughts. You don't hit every shot perfectly. Uh, you have to manage the emotions of, of playing a great round of golf when you need to. But Riviera, uh, there's subtleties to the course. Uh, and if one cor- one hole at Riviera plays easy like number one, the short par f- five down the hill, number two will play more difficult depending on the winds, time of day, uh, temperature. You know, you can play there sometimes when it's cold and wet and the ball doesn't go anywhere. Uphill shots play so long. No course makes you turn the ball in both directions more than Riviera. Riviera does. Um, those big eucalyptus trees, uh, the stadium look of the 18th hole that's just natural. Uh, it's hard. I've never met anybody that goes to Riviera and goes, this isn't one of the coolest places I've ever played. This, the look of the bunkering. Uh the green complexes and George Thomas. I mean, what a combination. I mean, that's the thing. George Thomas is might be the most underrated architect. You look at every single, he didn't do that many projects, but every single one home run. So uh, being a new England guy, uh, there's a great course, uh, in Massachusetts by the Cape, um, called Catansit and Catansit is hard to get to hard to find. And you got to go through these windy little roads. And as you're driving out towards the peninsula where it is, 
you pass this little course called Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N, I've golf club. Have you been there? Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's a little shack or shed, whatever, and, you know, like a gravel pit sort of parking lot and stone wall in front of a green. And, you know, I just used to laugh at that. You know, you saw pull carts out there, so uh, you could go pay 12 bucks and pay, play your eight, your nine holes. George Thomas's first course ever. And it's incredible. Yeah, and it's got great views when you go. Did you? you so you've been out there. I, yeah, I play, I played it um, with the with yeah. another with a with a architect, uh, young architect. It was so fun. We went out there on our box. Like if there's nobody working there, you just, you put, just your put your money, your money in, in. And um, you know, it, it, that was that's in a really, I think, an interesting course for people to go see because it's like the a glimpse into the first iteration of golf architecture. Yes. Because that was in, in the rock walls were the hazards because it was it was easier to build a rock wall than dig a bunker. Totally. And, and there were a lot of rocks around there. Um, the Philadelphia Quakers kind of that was a, a vacation spot for them. Uh, they would come to Jamestown, Rhode Island. They would come to Cape Cod. Uh, Thomas never got paid a fee to, to design a golf course. It's fabulous. A wealthy guy. Um, but that's where he learned. Uh his craft and and i don't know if he took some of that schooling from maybe north barrack that had some rock walls around it uh and and those walls you know part of what farmers laid down to divide properties yeah and then you just put them up and make the guy hit it over fantastic yeah that's it's a neat play that's like one of the hidden gems it's a in terms of a authentic unique golf experience there are a few that have more kind of character like it's not going to wow you with conditions but just a neat little spot you shouldn't drive by it you should stop no no. so if you were going there you had to have gone to Catanza. i didn't go oh jeez i just went to marion you did that's amazing i I, Uh, well i was flying into uh boston to get to uh yale and i i had time for one stop so i stopped that was your one stop now that's a great story uh Marion Golf Club. Yes, I, I, I have a thing for, you know. Well, if you're making me um, jealous because I want to go back there. My, my dad uh, was a good player, and he was a member as, when I was a little kid at Rhode Island Country Club where I learned to caddy and learned the game. But he also was a member at a place on the Cape called Eastwood Ho. Oh, yeah. Which has now really moved way up in the rankings. Keith Foster did a renovation there, cleared thousands and thousands of trees. Um, so that is one of the great places in America that many people don't know about. But there's a town called Fall River, Massachusetts. Fall River was a mill town. My father was the, worked at the Fall River Gas Company. And there's an 18-hole course called Fall River Country Club. But the original nine holes there is a sensational nine holes of golf. I brought Gil Hance there. They had punch bowl greens. They had Redan-style green. He, he goes, this is one of the greatest places I've ever seen. Um, so... Those little nine-hole tracks can be really, really fun. It's, I mean, we could talk. I, I wanted to talk more about golf course. We we ended up had to talk about you know the mind and golf and yeah. uh, but like I mean that's I think one of the neatest things about golf is just the exploration and and a lot of times the golf courses that you've never heard of like it's so worth just stopping and getting out of your car and seeing like what's going on here because like. There are cool little quirky nine-hole courses all over the place, especially in the Northeast. Um, you know, and uh, so it's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on, and we'll have to do it again maybe uh, totally. as we get closer to uh, you know maybe do something about Wingfoot or you know, definitely yeah. Let's do something coming up there because I my feeling on this U.S. Open is um, the U.S.J. would never admit this, but I, I think they want to really make guys sweat. I think they want to see some scores, uh, some traditional U.S. Open golf. I know Curtis Strange and Paul Azinger want to see guys bloody when they finish around. And those greens are. <laughs> it, real quick, talk about so, you know, Wingfoot's greens on on a like they would fall if somebody built them today. They'd be like these greens, they're unfair. But like because of the tradition, they you know they are they are intimidating. As a great putter, going to a place with with very undulating greens, do you feel just like when you stepped on a course like that, where you're at a, a bigger advantage? Definitely, and I think the the best putters, the better putters, like that, where it's difficult, uh, challenging on every putt. Uh, I, I I always put in my best at a, a place like Augusta um, because 
you, you it, it made you be more creative. Uh, you, you know, you were, you were nervous because putts were so fast, but I, I think the, the opposite is true too. Like at Beth page, everybody said, these are the best conditioned greens are all flat. You're going to putt great. I put it horribly there. I uh-huh. couldn't see a picture, you know, straighter putts are harder for me than breaking putts. It's, it's interesting. Cause like, I, th- I think one of the things that's happened with these green speeds getting so high yeah. is that, you know, tour doesn't like to put pins on, on much slope because they never want the course to be part of the conversation. Yes. And what's happened is like, I was watching even Kapalua down the stretch. And I'm like, God, I haven't seen a putt that anybody's played outside the hole from inside seven feet and yeah. losing, losing slope slopes, the best, you know, having a five footer that you're looking at, it's like, well, I could play it a ball out and put some pace on it, or I could play it a cup out and die it in the top edge. Right. Like that's where putting adds, there's almost an added dimension to it. So I, I learned that um, at a British Open, which traditionally are flatter greens because of the winds out there. When the weekends came around, the RNA who set up the golf course were, they were always able to find more slope. So the, the, you can make the course play more difficult with your hole locations, obviously tucking them in behind a bunker or um, by the edges of the green, but putting them where there's a lot of slope really is, is underrated and make it much more difficult. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, and, and it adds a dimension to the approach shot if, when there's more slope because yep. you can't get above it all of a sudden, then your target line, instead of aiming right at it and having five feet all around you, it becomes, Oh, I got to stay below it. And that bottom part of the circle is going to be 25 feet. Yeah, and that's where course knowledge is really important. You know, yeah. that's, that's a big part of it. Well, thank you. I yeah. really enjoyed yeah, talking with Yeah, it was fun. You. So uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. And uh, good luck uh, talking to Scotty later. I can't yeah. wait. I, yeah. I got to get a little bit more organized. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things. You can, an hour is not long enough to talk to Scotty Cameron, that's for yeah. sure. All right. Thanks, Brad. All right, Andy. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.